Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. I hope wherever you are, you're either on holidays by now or you're getting paid overtime to be working at that time of year when no one can be bothered. Nobody but your friendly a country podcasters. Me, Melanie Tate, and my partner in what some would say, Kim, podcast crime, um, Kim Lester. Hello, Mel. I just want to let you know that I've got um, a Sacramento wine here with me. <laughs> Is that a, am I allowed to that's, say that? Yeah, that's a really good <laughs> I hope so. That's a really, really good idea at the moment because we're here doing our Christmas special. I'm so excited about this. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm so excited that we're doing this Christmas special, but I actually have got myself a glass of sacramental wine. That's really, it's not, is it not, it's sacramental, not sacrificial wine. I still don't have, no, it's, quick sacramental Google. is totally right. I mean, it's totally right, but I just don't have all of my terms down pat yet yep. after this viewing. Um, but look, I feel, Kim, that this Christmas special now puts us in the class of the great British sitcoms who always have a Christmas special. Do you have a favourite? Yeah, totally. It's not a sitcom, but um, I hang out every year for the Call the Midwife Christmas special, which is actually, again, a little bit on theme uh, with this episode, but um, uh, which we'll explain in just a moment. But for me, that cathartic cry that Call the Midwife brings on every single season. <laughs> I just hang out for it every year. I love it. <laughs> so great. My favourite is Gavin and Stacey. The oh, last and yes. last year in particular is funny. My um, future sister-in-law watched it with my sister and I last year. It was a brand new one, a brand new Gavin and mm. Stacey. Remember, it was so wonderful. And yes. my future sister-in-law, wasn't the fan of it that Sarah and I are <laughs> and she liked to chat through it. And so oh. my sister and <laughs> I, right, though, we're really excited about this because we feel like this year we get to just watch it fresh. Like there's so much that we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have experienced. Can I just say that's just such a Gavin and Stacey thing to do though, isn't it? Like <laughs> it's like she was Bryn or something. <laughs> <laughs> Totally. So funny. So yeah, we get to watch it afresh on um, this Love Christmas it. Eve and I absolutely can't wait. So Kim, uh, we should talk about the exciting news. We've got another Christmas present, a special Christmas special special guest. We've got playwright, <laughs> Guardian columnist and host of the week on Wednesday podcast, Brainiac Van Batam joining us. Yes, she is taking on our little history segment for us because I just, I, I just, felt that I wasn't the person to do the history of this mm -hmm. particular um, social issue. So we've we've called in an expert. What do you call what do you what's it called? We've called in a sub yeah. uh, in Van Batham. <laughs> so yeah, let's get Christmas specialing. And we're not actually talking about a country practice <gasps> this week. Oh my goodness. Say what, Kim? <laughs> okay, here's a hint. Kim, we're doing the great classic 1991 miniseries, the ABC's Brides of Christ. Yes. So why are we doing this, Kim? Why indeed, Mel? Uh, I'd never seen it before. We're doing it because it's a Christmas special. It sits within the same universe as a country practice. It's an important Australian drama, for mm -hmm. one. 
Um, it's incredibly political. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looks at a really specific time in Australian culture and a very specific Australian culture. Yeah. And so I, it's fascinating. And I feel as well we can really rationalise it, Kim, because there's. I love that you're sipping your sacramental wine while we're doing this. I just love <laughs> I actually really love it. I wish I had have got a little cheeky non-alc because my my taste buds are still way too immature for red wine. All right. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> well, uh, let me just let you in on what happened. So mm-hmm. I just had my my husband's side of the family Christmas dinner um, because we're, yeah. we're doing Christmas with my family. So we've just gone and had Christmas dinner. And so I had a couple of sparkling <laughs> rosés while I was out <laughs> and I was starting to sober up and I thought, actually, it was kind of nice having a little buzz on <laughs> for the Christmas special. So I thought I might pour Put myself a buzz a glass on. Of wine. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> so Brides of Christ, which we are, you know, having our Christmas special wine for, it's also got a lot of a country practice crossover. That's one way we've been able to yeah. rationalise doing this. So Kim Wilson, um, Anne Tenney, has a rec- they both have recurring roles in it. It was a breeding ground for young Australian acting talent, just like a country practice. And Kim, it really proves that the late 80s and early 90s were a really golden age of great Australian television, you know. Shows like A Country Practice and miniseries like Brides of Christ, Bangkok Hilton, etc. they've all got this really similar DNA. Mm, totally. And, you know, I did a bit of Googling today and I did some cross-checking. I Look, I didn't write it down, so I'm going on memory. And, hey, but, like this is basically drunk history but, yes. a, but a country <laughs> podcast. drunk today. history of Brides of Christ. <laughs> <laughs> so I was doing some cross-checking uh-huh. of the cast of Brides of Christ against yeah. their IMDBs to see how many of them had been in a country practice and so yeah. many of the main cast, like Philip Quast. Did you know that Philip Quast did a country practice? Do you know Philip Quast is one of the great acting loves of my life, Kim? Javert well, from Les Miserables. Which, I, I guarantee you that we will be doing we're definitely Philip gonna do Quast, a episode, country practice episode yeah, we, in an upcoming season, <laughs> coming to you shortly. <laughs> I'm not surprised, but I didn't know that. Who else? Yeah. Any other crossovers? I feel like I did see Simon Burke's name in there. He would have I could be sure. wrong about that. Melissa, is it Jeff? Jeff? Jeffa? So there's Melissa Jaffa and there's also Melissa um It was Melissa Jaffa. Melissa, Melissa Jaffa. Yeah, she's the older, yeah. she's one of the nurse nuns. Yeah. So Melissa Jaffa, who has a part in Brides of Christ in the first episode, mm-hmm. um, she has done a couple of episodes. A lot of them have played two or three characters, as Classic. is often the case with yeah. a country practice. Yeah, loads of them have been in a country practice. I would venture to say actually that pretty much the only pair that I looked up that hadn't been on a country practice were Naomi Watts and Russell Crowe. Yeah. Like everybody yeah. else has pretty much, well, that I looked up. I didn't look up my beloved Philip Quast, but mm. well, some other time. So let's get to it. Kim, shall we have a brief overview of Brides of Christ for anybody who hasn't had the glory of seeing it, which I might point out another reason we're doing this is you can revisit this until the end of January at uh, ABC ABC iView. So Brides of Christ follows a fictional order of nuns moving into a secular world where the Catholic Church is losing its power over its once adoring and sacred flock. Um, It's set mainly in the 60s when the Catholic Church was going through that big reformation with what became known as Vatican II, and we'll hear all about that later from Mm. Van Batum. The series is set over about 10 years, and in that time we meet postulant nuns Sister Paul and Sister Catherine who 
really show just the divide in the church. Mm, so mm. Um, Paul, who's played by Lisa Hensley, she's this loving, um, she's very accepting of the church's ways. She's kind of joined the order because mm. what else would she do, you know? Good Catholic she's, girl she, she from liked, a big family. Good Catholic girl. She liked her nun who taught her at school and she thought, oh, yeah, I might do that. Whereas <laughs> Catherine, played by Josephine Burns, she's gone in very much of her own agency. Mm. She's a very much a questioning intellectual and she's there. She left her fiancé to join the order and she's there because it, she felt the calling in a way, I guess, that came with a lot more choice than mm. necessarily mm. or thought, I don't know, the best way to put it. Well, I think that undermines Paul's reasoning, but, but that's explored later yeah. in the series, and, isn't and it? And also, like, the really interesting thing about um, Sister Catherine coming in is, or Diane, as she's called in real life, yes. her non her non name. In real her, life. I mean, her real life name. IRL. Her, yeah, her IRL non nun name um, is that her mother is devastated about it. Yes. So doesn't want her to to join the church. So it's a it's mm. a it's such an interesting juxtaposition, these two characters. They really are like you can see you can see them in the writer's room, can't you? Totally. So they're shepherded through their nun training by Mother Superior and um, Sister Agnes, played by Sandy Gore, who yes, did an a country practice. Oh, God, um, Sandy Gore. And the Academy Award winner, Brenda Fricker, oh. who is, you know, let's say she's best known for my left foot. Also, since it's Christmas, Home Alone 2, she's the pigeon lady. <laughs> she's the pigeon lady. She is too. She is a delight in that movie, <laughs> as she is in this particular role. Not so much a delight, but... She's amazing. In, in the same tradition as Matron Sloane and Esme, mm-hmm. she is nuanced. Mm-hmm. She is layered. Mm-hmm. She could have been awful mm-hmm. and terrifying. But there's more to it than that, and I loved it. I thought she was terrifying when I was younger watching this. It's only as an adult I see her nuance and, like, la- you know, the layers of yeah. her. Yeah, yeah, she's amazing. Definitely. Anyway, keep, sorry, keep going. I keep interrupting. Don't sorry, be sorry. Um, the series moves from the convent to the Catholic boarding school, where they all teach in Sister Agnes and Mother Ambrose, um, as well as Catherine and Paul, all teach in this boarding school. And this is where we meet a young Naomi Watts, actually kind of unrecognisable without her Hollywood shine, I've got to say. She was kind of, I did a double take. Mm-hmm. I was like, really? Is that, is that, Naomi, is that her? Mm-hmm. Because once they start to look the part of Hollywood roles, mm. you know, they really are just glammed up, right? Glossy. And Naomi Watts in this role, I think, just was the perfect plain schoolgirl in and I mean that in the nicest possible way you know Mm. like she wasn't all dressed up and next to Kim Wilson who has these kind of luscious lips and these amazing striking eyes it was interesting to see the two of them side by side yeah Naomi Watts kind of looks like somebody who could have been your friend at school doesn't she totally yeah totally she totally does yeah she reminded me of one of my sisters so yes Naomi Watts Kim Wilson and Melissa Thomas who take us inside the Catholic schoolgirl experience in a world that's uh like sexual mores and politics are rapidly changing so that was just really fascinating Mm. to see the series deals with premarital sex, birth control and abortion, questioning the church um, and its leadership and the way the changes of Vatican II and the changes of the, the culture around them affected the nuns and the priests within the church. And it features a swathe of incredible Australian actors, Philip Quast, as we said, the best Javert, <laughs> Russell Crowe, the worst Javert, <laughs> Simon Burke. 
<laughs> Simon Burke was in the original Australian Lame Is as well. Oh, was he? Yeah, I think he was like Enjolras or someone. I, I don't my, know who he was. Marius. My, uh, my favourite Lame Is is the 10th anniversary oh, yeah, concert. Of course, me too. Of course. Obviously. Obviously. And that's Philip Quas. So that's yes. kind of how I got to oh. know Lame Is. And oh. of course, sisters and I and mother and I all oh. went to the movies to see the Russell Crowe version yeah. and it was just god-awful. <laughs> it was so, you know, I've got a theory about so why hard. it was so awful, Kim, if we yeah. just have a little sidebar for a second, is that Valjean and Javert need to be equals in every single way mm. when they're on stage. So they need to be equally powerful actors. They need to be equally powerful singers. Yes. And they weren't and that took away from their equality. Like Hugh Jackman is just a superior musical theatre singer. Absolutely. And just Russell couldn't make up for like Russell's an amazing actor, but his voice just wasn't up to that role, yeah. was it? I imagine if yeah. his role if his voice had have been up to that role, he would have absolutely killed it. But it wasn't. Yeah. And Quasti should have I don't know why they didn't just put Quasti in. It would have made him Or a star. even just we had this conversation afterwards. Like who else who else could you possibly put in? And obviously there is just an absolute swathe of people that yeah. you could put in. And I mean I think at the time too, it was sort of even then, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but we weren't even considering actors of colour who could have been in that role. I mean, imagine the number of people out there who would just absolutely, like anyone from the Hamilton cast, you know, like imagine. um, Actually, Jamie Foxx would kill it. He's an amazing singer. Yep, absolutely. Um, I know this is probably really kind of a bit of a cliche, but Mm. God, what's the name of the guy that plays? Aaron Burr. Uh, Aaron Burr. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He'd be Leslie Odom Jr. He'd be amazing. Yeah, he would have nailed it. Well, he basically plays Javert in, yeah, exactly. in Hamilton. So, yes, I'm yes. pro that too. Yeah. Anyway, we digress. We're talking now, about who's in it. You were saying who's in it. Oh, yeah. We were talking about who's in it. Okay. So, obviously, Russell Crowe, Simon Burke, and Tenny, who was fantastic in it's it. Perfect. Um, it was so yeah. great to see her shake off the Molly and just play a completely different role. I mm. just absolutely loved her in this. Salvatore Coco, Caroline Gilmer. Who's amazing. Oh my in gosh. This from Neighbours. She was fantastic. And Neighbors. I did some Googling. Uh, and was horrified because she played an elderly nun who mm. was really struggling with the changes. And at one point she even got a purple rinse in the <laughs> in the episode. And I Googled it and she was 36 at the time that she played this character. And then about three or four years later she went on to play a character in Neighbours that had a menopause baby. <laughs> <laughs> who, thank goodness, was a very glamorous woman. You know, and oh, I, yeah. I feel like, I always feel like Caroline Gilmer's career is really interesting because she was always kind of a bigger woman. So I think that she mm. was cast probably as that older character because, like, fat equals old. But in actual yeah. fact, like, how wonderful that Neighbours made her into the glamorous kind of divorce. Yeah. And um, she was independently wealthy from memory. Right. But yeah. the, the menopause baby thing makes me laugh because, <laughs> like, how many of our friends had babies at 40 or older? Like, some of some of our closest friends had babies when they were, friend, like, yeah, 43, absolutely. 44. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. She had a menopause anyway. baby. How old would she have been? 38 on Neighbours having she a menopause was, baby. 40, I think, when she did that role on Neighbours. But, yeah, 36, 36, I think, when right. she played oh, um, Sister Philomena. So, so many juicy things to discuss. What have you discovered? Because you've been doing the digging around. I've been doing a episode. dig around for this one because I am a huge fan of Brides of Christ. In fact, I would say my love of Brides of Christ is almost equal to my love of a country practice. It is a mm. long and deep 
love and it's a love that, you know, whenever I'm involved in the casting of one of my plays, I'm always just putting forward actors from Brides of Christ <laughs> and, and the country practice. Um, so Brides of Christ, obviously, Kim, was a really huge moment in Australian television. The series cost a whopping $6.2 million, <sighs> which is a lot for a series even now of six episodes, let alone mm. 30 years ago. Um, it was the biggest drama ever for the ABC and I'm not sure anything's equaled it since. I'm not, sh- I'm, I'm not sure. I couldn't find that out, but I don't it's think so, it has. I mean, it would just be impossible, wouldn't it, to equal anything? Well, it, it, I think so because people were actually all watching TV. There were yeah. no other choices then and I couldn't even think of any anything that came close to yeah. to that, you know. Because- You'd almost need to do like a per capita analysis because you you cannot compare the millions of people that would sit down and watch TV no. appointment television then yeah. to the vast array of television that's yeah, on offer, absolutely. ways to watch. Absolutely. It's mm. crazy. It had what was called a 30 share, which I've tried to figure out what that means and can't. Basically, <laughs> no it means idea. a lot of people watch because it keeps being mentioned in all of the news articles about it. Um, it was brought to us by pretty much the same team as another huge ABC miniseries, which was The Leaving of Liverpool. The writers, John Olsop and Sue Smith, uh, along with the EP, Penny Chapman, who also was the creator of Brides of Christ. And Penny Chapman's gone on to do a lot of really legendary limited run series in Australia like uh, The Slap and oh. uh, Blue Murder and, yeah. um, the you know, the, the recent Devil's Playground series. That so, was the, so getting into those political social issues, like yeah. think, just thinking about The Slap, that was really Absolutely. covered a lot of yeah. social issues. Yeah, and mm. I think that's what, I think that's the kind of work she made. She did an interview with... ABC Radio a couple of months ago, I guess when this came out on iView, saying that she's actually had a whole career of things about the Catholic Church. So oh. so a lot of stuff to do with Catholics and the Catholic Church. Um, she's she's kind of explored it from every angle. Yeah. Um, Cast-wise, as you mentioned, first major appearance by Naomi Watts and Russell Crowe. Um, Kim Wilson, who you mentioned before, who plays Rosemary, she actually won a Logie that year, or in 1992, the year after it came out, for Best mm. New Talent for her work on Brides of Christ, but also for her work on, guess what? A country practice. That's right, a country practice. So, again, it, it links up again. Yeah. Now, in this cast of really extraordinary actors, the real coup in the casting was, of course, we've touched on briefly Brenda Fricker. Now, she mm. just won an Academy Award for her work in My Left Foot with Daniel Day-Lewis. I don't think we can underestimate what a coup it would be to get for an Australian drama and yeah. an Academy Award winning actor. She said in an article around the time that she had a pile of scripts at home in Ireland after she had done My Left Foot, somehow it came into her hands and she could not do it, that the writing was so, so good, which I just feel is so inspiring for writers that maybe, just maybe, if you write something good enough and it gets in the right hands, you can have Brenda Fricker. Yeah. I just love that in that same pile was Home Alone 2 because <laughs> <laughs> that movie must have come out around 91, 92, didn't it? <laughs> Surely it would be rather. Do you reckon that that would have been, though, cash, money, 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 cash, yeah, money, money, money? Absolutely. <laughs> because I I feel like so many of these great actors that do these great small films like Brenda Fricker does or, mm. or that are pretty much artists, like yeah. they would just get bugger all money for all. Like yeah. we always think movie stars are rich, but we know from doing this no. show, don't we, that TV and movie actors just, ugh, 
They don't get paid very much anyway, or mm. unless they're Naomi. I think Naomi Watts is fine and Rusty. Rusty. I think she'll be all right. Rusty will be fine. Yeah. But Rusty's ploughed a lot of money into the Rabbitohs, so who knows how Rusty's actually doing. I worry about Rusty sometimes. <laughs> Do you? Um, Kim Lester, one of the things I love most about uh, this is a story I found from Lisa Hensley who plays Sister Paul. She told about her casting in the feature at the time it came out. Um, mm. She and Josephine Burns were great friends just in real life as actors kind of are, and they had just travelled around the world together, gone backpacking when they got the call. Like they were best friends in real life. Wow. And they got the call to do the audition. That really shows. Doesn't it? Because they are best friends on that show and it's beautiful. I love that friendship. It's almost like we're watching a romance throughout Mm. with them, isn't it? Like I feel like it's one of the great love stories. Like I know it's a platonic love. I'm not suggesting no, of anything course, else, yeah. but it's just such a beautiful platonic love story. Uh, you know, like it, it is kind of forbidden. Their friendship is almost forbidden in the yeah. beginning and they're separated and Diane is seen as being a bad influence over Paul mm. um, because Paul starts to think freely and starts to question things. It's yeah. so interesting. I got a bit of a lesbiche vibe from why they wanted to keep them, <laughs> the girls apart though, the posture. Like it was definitely policy that they kept girls apart yeah. from getting too close. And I don't know if it was just me watching it because um, when watching twenty twenty eyes, but also watching it uh, for the third time, like this is the second time I've watched it this year. I think I might have been watching it from because I'd read stuff about like you can have a queer viewing of this film very very mm. much. You know, like there's lots of you know like people watch Top Gun. There's yeah. a, there's a queer way yeah. of watching Top Gun. I felt that there was a well, bit even of a the bu- friendships with the three um, schoolgirls. You could you could probably have a similar. Mm. view across their friendship as well. Yeah, there's just, you know, if you want to see things, you can see them basically. So in Australia, the Brides of Christ swept the Logies, it won five Logies, all the big ones. It played to an audience of about 6 million in the UK, but it didn't actually have a huge showing in the US running on a smaller network called A&E, which I think is a huge shame because there's an enormous Catholic population Mm. in uh, the US. So obviously it just wasn't on the right network. It wasn't promoted well enough because... I just feel like this is such a strong piece of television that yeah. it's not just for Australia. No, I, you of course. Know, it, it sort of seems so so universal. When it came out, it was super, super duper controversial. It took up the letters pages of all the major newspapers with support, with outrage from Catholics, from non-Catholics, from lapsed Catholics, from basically <laughs> anyone who had it, had TV. Now, I've actually got... Let me just find in my uh, notes here. Sorry about that shuffling of paper, but I've actually got a letters page. Do you want me to <laughs> it's read the you? Christmas just, special, anything it's Christmas, goes, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want me to just read you one yeah. of the? Um, I'll read you one of the shorter ones. The nuns. This is from M. Marion Craig of Kew, Victoria. It was from the Green Gra- Guide, Thursday, nineteenth of September, nineteen ninety-one. In the Age. The nuns in Brides of Christ are but actresses. Their very faces betray them. Never a glimpse of the individual sister at prayer in personal loving devotion to her Lord. No attempt is made to relate in depth to the historic role of dedicated women, often powerful and profound from the early Christian ages through medieval Renaissance and 19th century times down to our own secularist world. Nor is the hard, stern message of the gospel honestly faced. The same for women as for men, uncompromising chastity, self-sacrifice, total dedication, obedience to the faith. Instead, our minds are 
vitilated with sex, self, sob stories and frustrated feminist outrage. It is also petty, so trivial, were it not for the far-reaching consequence of this rebellion and the tragedy so immense. I mean, I really don't think I'd say Bridget's mum having to bring on a miscarriage because she feared for her life in Mm. her pregnancy, in having another pregnancy. I don't think I'd call that trivial. I don't think I'd call that a sob story. I don't think any of the stories in this are are trivial or sob stories, are they? I think that was somebody who just watched it from a point of view without or or might not have even watched it. Yeah, it's a very academic point of view, I think. I think also there is so much questioning of the power in the history of Mm. women in Mm. the church through Diane. I think she's a fantastic voice for that history. Yeah, and we'll hear more about that with Van Batten from The Week on Wednesday very, very soon. Now, just one other thing I wanted to mention before we do move on to speak to Van is this. I also found a clipping that talked about an Adelaide town hall meeting that the Catholic Church had arranged for Catholics to air their grievances and support each other through the tidal wave of publicity surrounding it. So it really was appointment TV that got all of Australia, all of Australia talking, like I've got this article here, the size of the gathering, this is from Peter Hughes in the Adelaide Advertiser, Thursday, September 26, 1991, the size of the gathering surprised those in Catholic bureaucracy who organised Brides of Christ Revisited, a public meeting to discuss the issues raised by the ABC series whole article in the advertiser about what was discussed and the like about this town hall meeting. I mean, it's just amazing. So Kim, it was your first watch of Brides of Christ. We should be calling it Bok. It was your first first watch of Bok, like we call it ACP, don't we? So yeah. yeah. Um, Bok is much worse for plosives from a a pure recording perspective. (laughs) Okay, let's stick with Brides of Christ. Um, (laughs) I don't mind. Kim, it was your first watch of Brides of Christ. What did you think? I loved it. It was so good. I ended up, I think I binged the last three episodes. Mm. So I I took my time with the first two. Mm. I watched them over maybe a week or two. And then I had an afternoon to myself and I just went hard with the last three. It was so good. And I loved that every episode kind of, it, it focused on a different character and a different story with every episode, but obviously all of their stories intertwined and overlapped. And it really just did make me think of prestige television, this this golden age that we mm. sort of think came maybe with the Sopranos and I guess yeah, the Sex and um, the City growth and of Netflix kind of and yeah. HBO and all of these sort of prestige television networks. But honestly, I just thought it held up so well. The acting held up. Even just this, the look of it, because it was set in the past, the look of it really held up as well. Mm. I thought it worked so well. Yeah, it really, and the writing's beautiful. Mm. I wasn't allowed watch it when it came out. I'm pretty sure I was. I was 11, and my mum watched it, and I wasn't allowed watch it. I watched it for the first time. It must have been when it came out on video. Yeah, because I can remember uh-huh. it had those big double videos. You know the mm. the sort of yes, <laughs> the yes, double I videos remember. from from the video shop. And I really loved it. I had a fascination growing up from the time I was very small with being Catholic and being Jewish. I don't really? know. Really? Yeah. I just. What religion? Were you, did your family have so, uh, a religion? Sort of. I mean, I'm I'm christened Presbyterian and I went to Sunday school and church mm-hmm. and all that yep. kind of church until, I don't know, high school or something like that. 
Mm-hmm. Know all the and I used to go to kids club and but I think I yeah I think me we too. yeah I think and one of my favorite songs is do you know it for God so loved the world that He gave <laughs> His one and only Son that forever believeth in Him shall not perish but have eternal life John three sixteen. <laughs> Did you um, have that tape? Yeah, Kim? so I, I'm similar in that I grew up in the Uniting Church, mm-hmm. very much through my mum's influence. And uh, went to Sunday school, went to kids club and stopped going when I was about 14 uh, of my own accord. But my mum is very involved with her church. Um, So I have a huge amount of respect for it. But it was, it's a very liberal, the Uniting Church is a very liberal church. Although there's probably all kinds of nuances within the church about um, things like gay marriage and, um, you know, some of those more sort of hot button issues. It, It is very much what we'll hear from Van in in the um, theme of that social justice Christianity. You know what? We should actually probably pop over to Van, shouldn't we, and get some of that history. So because yes. it's Christmas, we thought we'd outsource the history, like Kim said, and talk to Brainiac, Guardian columnist, <laughs> playwright and the host of the new excellent Week on Wednesday podcast, which we'll link to in our notes, Van Batten. We started by asking about the first time Van watched it. Well, my mother was really interested to watch it, so I watched it with her. I must have been 16 uh, when it was first shown and it was sort of, it was particularly interesting because my mother um I come from a Catholic family mm-hmm. and I am a practicing Catholic. My mother isn't mm. anymore. And we believe the reason for that is that she went to a Catholic school very much like the one that was featured in Brides of Christ. And as a result, I did not. I went 100% to state schools and therefore came sort of back to the faith in, on my own terms, in my own way, and certainly without the spectre of, you know, terrifying mm-hmm. nuns or, you know, institutional sexual abuse sort of hanging over my experience of the religion, which I understand could be quite formative. Yeah. And for my mother, it was a really great opportunity for her to sort of illustrate the difference between the culture that I had grown up in and the culture that she had grown up in. And when my mother was growing up in the 1950s, there was still an enormous amount of discrimination against Catholics in Australia, which seems just unfathomable to us Mm. now. Like we have persecuted and marginalised so many other groups since then. And my mother's experience of Catholic school was actually really negative. I mean, she got some really great things out of it, that there were women teachers who were the nuns, who were highly intelligent, educated women, but there was also this, you know, incredible um, discipline and these quite restrictive understandings of social role and, you know, and an inherent religious conservatism that that has always sat really uncomfortably with the tradition of Catholic social justice, which is this very core cultural belief in Catholicism that, you know, that 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 a Catholic, like a good observant Catholic observes a preferential option for the poor that is that always you must consider in the actions of your day-to-day life how are you helping people what are you doing for the most marginalized how are you serving the largest number of people and certainly religious orders like the ones that are referred to in brides of christ whether they're teaching orders or nursing orders or other sort of charitable operations the idea is that you know catholicism services those who are 
um, marginalised, excluded, downtrodden, the poor, etc. So, so as a sixteen-year-old watching this, and you know, somebody who wanted to write plays and to be a writer, how did you take it in dramatically then? Oh, uh, it was really interesting. So, I was not religious at that point when I was sixteen. I sort of, I had um, gone through reconciliation and holy communion, and at the time that I was going through confirmation. Um, in the Catholic Church, I had I had encountered Marxism and had realised that I was absolutely positively a Marxist and probably because of the, I mean, 1991 is the end of the Cold War, but I'm, I'm 16 and I'm still coming out of the Cold War where it was very much about, you know, you could be one thing or another. It was quite a polarised time. Mm. And certainly my mother's negative experience of, um, her church education, the negative experiences she had had, had a huge influence on me not identifying. I identified as a cultural Catholic because of obviously the influence of my family, but I didn't identify as a religious Catholic at that point. Um, and so it was experiencing it. I think it, I think retrospectively I can say, oh, it was hugely influential on me in dramatic terms. I actually had, because I, you know, like, grew up in working class Sydney I had no middle class connections and no middle class friends but when I was 14 I started going to drama classes on the weekend and there was a guy who was my drama teacher who was friends with Sue Smith who wrote Brides of Christ wow. and that was like the only connection I had to the world of drama or you know people who made television or people who wrote plays because Sue Smith writes plays as well and I felt this sort of sense of connection to the material because I had a friend who, who I had this drama teacher who knew her as a friend. So in some ways it was really quite influential because I could see that I, because I had that connection, it, it felt like it was possible that, mm. you know, I knew somebody who, who did that, who wrote things, who made things, and television wasn't this sort of faraway fairyland to me anymore. Like I could associate the fact that real people were involved and those real people could be women who wanted to talk about the lives of women and the experiences of women and that was hugely influential on me and of course I really enjoyed the show and I had this great dialogue about it with my mother and and you know it was just a fantastic experience I think for a whole generation of young women to just see the lives of women and girls are like centered in a story like and yes, it was a culturally specific story, but I think the genius of Brides of Christ is that it, it does what all really good dramatic art does, which is it gives you a familiar path into meeting the strange. And, you know, it it doesn't shy away from things that are difficult, although it doesn't go down the darkest possible path. Mm, yeah. um, and uh, there were other dramatic products at the time that certainly started to broach that conversation. But I think Brides of Christ by focusing on on women and women's stories was, you know, really political and um, in in every way. And certainly at looking at the... So one of the things that gets talked about in Brides of Christ is they talk about Vatican II. Mm-hmm. And Vatican II was the, the conference, like the ongoing conference council that was held at the instigation um, of the Pope, who I believe was Paul VI, um, and it was this, you know, reproachment with the modern world and let's actually talk about how we speak to modernity. And there was this, on the first day of this council that was going to sit down and go, right, 
Catholicism? What is it all about? What are we holding on to that we can let go of? What do we need to do to be relevant to people's lives? Someone said, a guy from one of the um, participants who was from Belgium said, has it occurred to anybody that we're only having half a conversation because the other half of the Catholic Church is not here? And somebody was like, what are you talking about? And this guy was like, there are no women in the room. Like women are half of the faith. And somebody was like, oh, we better we better find some women. And they found like 15 um, religious women Catholics who were brought into the conversation. There was actually an Australian woman uh, called Rosemary, Rosemary Goldie, her name was, Rosemary Goldie. And uh, apparently one of the, in one of the sessions, one of the guys who was working on the, docu- the document that was going to come out of this whole process did this whole in praise of women thing that was all flowery and women are so great and women are so this and women are so that. And, you know, this Australian woman, like, just was fundamentally unimpressed and it was one of those moments where everybody noticed. Mm. And he was like, but why aren't you you pleased with what I'm saying? And she was like, well, you can drop all the flowery language for a start, you know, we're human beings and we need to be treated accordingly kind of thing. which apparently um, made quite the impact in the discussions. So it was, I mean, it was a really interesting time. And um, certainly in the 1970s, there was quite a push for, there was like a, you know, outpouring of feminist theology um, in Catholicism and a feminist theological movement in Catholicism um, where, you know, there was a push for the ordination of women. But that sort of fell away where a lot of, of you know, activist female Catholics were like this. The church is so mired in its medieval past that it's probably better that we try and create spaces for theological discussion about Catholicism that aren't actually within the church mm. because the structures are so absolutely overwhelming. Like it's such a rigid bureaucracy. So does that make the sixties like a really fundamental time to set Brides of Christ in? Yeah. Like, could it have been I mean, at it any a, other time? Because two things happen. Well, it's just a dramatic, like, the 60s are a really interesting place to set, you know, a mini series about Australian women and Catholicism. Because one, you had the invention of the pill, which changed mm-hmm. the world, of course, um, and the way that the Catholic Church dealt with that, which was badly. Um, So there was all of this great sentiment around Vatican II and this idea of inclusion and representation and diversity. But then, of course, and that process begins in, I think, 1962. I'm not um, a great historian of the Catholic Church. I will just try my best. Um, But what happens later in the decade is the same pope um, comes out with Humanae Vitae, and Humanae Vitae is an encyclical, like an instruction to all Catholics, that basically affirms the church's position is that artificial contraception is wrong and right out and not okay. So you have all of this incredible promise, and for like a generation of women who were basically seeing this opportunity to engage a bit of family planning, really, like you had families that were trapped in cycles of poverty because Catholic dogma around um, around um, having children and the notion of sex being a procreative act 
meant that you had families that had more children they they could possibly afford Mm. child after child after child these exhausting sort of ongoing pregnancies um that you know put enormous amounts of pressure on women and families and broader family units but you know was part of catholic dogma is this idea that if you have a child it's if you get pregnant it is god's will and you must Mm. always be open to god's will and a child is a gift from god and the whole notion of sex is an opportunity to be blessed with children and that's what sex exists for you know this kind of really idealized and completely impractical and almost an almost childlike understanding of the role of sex in relationships quite Mm. honestly and all of those discussions are happening sort of at the same time so all of this energy and promise and then we're back to the beginning because you know, men are telling women what they can and can't do. The 1960s is also the moment when Catholicism really sort of peaks in Australia. It's when we had our largest number of nuns. Really? Yeah. So I think there were about 160,000 women who were (laughs) active in the orders at that time. Um, Yeah. But, and of course now it's, it's, dwindling every day the average age of a nun in australia now is 74 even though my mother had a rough time at catholic school she considered um she considered joining a convent because that was a viable career path Mm. you know and if you look at what were the options open to women um at that time depending on what community they were from like taking taking holy orders in the catholic church was the only opportunity a lot of working class women ever had to get an education, you know, to become a teacher or a nurse or a doctor or achieve any kind of qualification. How do you feel about this show now as a grown woman who's come back to Catholicism? Oh, look, I think it, I think it illustrates, I think the journey of um, the main character is actually really impactful. And, you know, it's so interesting because there are moments of it that really stayed with me, I think because they were so authentic and they were so mm. real. You know, the fact that you have um, the sister and the priest who, mm. you know, fall in love and it, and it doesn't work. Mm. And that was a lot more common mm. than, like, that's not a fanciful story. Like, that yeah. was the, these ridiculous, stupid, unnatural pressures mm. put on people in the way to define their relationships as sort of all or nothing, holy or sinful and these kind of dichotomies. Like that's that has stayed with me my entire life. Like that kind of message that you know that that life is a, and this is what I think is so good about Brides of Christ is that life is a lot more complicated than really simplistic. And that's sort of the beauty of the show is like it demonstrates that life, real life, is more complicated than religious idealism or romantic idealism. Mm. And the show is particularly good because. You know, coming in 1991, we're still coming out of an era where feminism sort of happening, but it's cultural impact in terms of making cultural products mm-hmm. for a mass market is still in its infancy, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here you have a show that says, that speaks to generations of romance narratives, women, where the only sort of active role women have in a story is to make a man love them and marry them. You know, that that's saturated through fairy tales and soap operas and films and that's the role of women. And, and successful women is a man loving you and that's mm. it. And Brides of Christ goes, 
actually, that's not the end. That's not where the story ends. The story is more complicated and the story is difficult. And it's it's sort of beautiful because it's a metaphor not only for the romance narrative of popular culture, but also the medieval romanticism of the Catholic Church's attitude towards relationships. And it and it explodes both simultaneously for the same reason, that women are human beings, as the women who went to Vatican II participated in those discussions said, we have a lot more going on. Mm. And also the fact that the... The lead character, she comes into the church because she knows she can't go through with the marriage. She feels a sense of calling. And when she leaves the church, it's not because of a man. Mm-hmm. You know, it's because of a sense of self-awareness and a sense of agency and a, a sense of needing to to pursue her own her own story. Yeah. And I think well, that's that incredibly was her reason powerful. for going into it as well. Like it was it, she had a real sense of agency in her decision to join the convent don't you think yeah absolutely and she she's determined to Mm. self-actualize but Mm. the structure that she's given and I think it's quite loving that and I I think you can see that and I I recognize in that sort of my mother's attitude you know that she was taught by some really incredible women who Mm. really inspired her and you know gave her moral instruction that was good and and made her and, and educated her in how to be a good person but at the same time, the roles that that experience offered to her were really polarised and restrictive. And my mother, you know, left school and travelled and ended up having this kind of extraordinary life for a working class woman because she she made a decision to just forge her own way. Mm. And I think I really connected with that, even though the character in Brides of Christ, go like, you know, joins the convent, takes holy orders you know, becomes an novitiate, the rest of it, and then is like, this is not enough. This is not the way. And I think that's really powerful. I, I think it was a really, really powerful lesson to learn as a 16-year-old, and especially the fact that, you know, the story doesn't end when you fall in love with someone, whether they're a hot priest or not. <laughs> she's good uh, she's great ben batham there who's the host of the week on wednesday podcast you can um get more information about that in our notes i gotta tell you mel it is pouring here and i think i even heard a little bit of thunder just a second ago so if you can hear that um coming through yeah i mean i'm not going to apologize maybe it's because Maybe because we're is, we're a pair of Protestants talking about yes, rides of Christ. Maybe we've brought this on. Can I just talk you through a couple of my other thoughts about please? Um, I would love rides that. of Christ before yeah. we move on. I love that. So because I after I finished the last episode, I just quickly went to my computer and I wrote down mm-hmm. a bunch of notes. Right, Sister Ambrose, uh, Mother Ambrose. Sorry, I just have to say, loved her. What a wonderful character. This is and the Sandy Gore character, the Mother this Superior. Is Sandy Gore. What a stroke of genius it was in her episode to have her swimming because I just thought seeing her in her swimming costume completely humanised her. She was Mm -hmm. out of the habit. It just kind of put her on the same level as um, Philip Quast, who was sort of the main character. Um, He was the the lay priest, wasn't he? No, he's not a lay priest. He's just a teacher. Oh, he's a teacher. That's right. He was the the lay teacher. One of the criticisms I found in all the many readings of newspaper letters to the editor was that that scene was so fanciful. That they went to the movies. No, that a mother superior would never be in a swimming pool with a a male teacher that yeah. they would hire from 
not within the church to come and teach at a Catholic girls' school. They, yeah. The person said that would just never happen. But I hope that it did and I hope Philip Quast was that teacher on his second <laughs> motorbike. <laughs> but sorry. I can completely imagine that it would be very fanciful. But also I loved the way that it humanised her. I loved the idea that you could humanise these people because they are human beings at the end of the day. And and I loved the way that um, Sister Paul swore, you know, like when she was a postulant, she was swearing a little bit and, and they were talking and that Diane had absolutely no guilt for having sex with her fiancé. Mm. You know, it wasn't this thing that she had to kind of worry about or feel guilty about or regret. It was just this thing that she chose of her own accord to do and she felt proud of it. She felt proud enough of it to tell Sister Paul about it. And you can see the little cogs in Sister Paul's head going, oh, and she actually even says it, oh, I wish I had have done that before. Yeah. Before it doesn't she? She's like, I knew I missed. I knew I was missing something. (laughs) (laughs) So I loved all of those little things that really did actually, I guess, help serve as a reminder that these are human Mm. beings. You Mm. know, they're not they're not above human nature. Mm. Yeah. And oh, okay. So my favorite episode. I need to tell you. I need to talk to you about my favorite episode, which was episode two, which was about Frances, Naomi Watts' character. So this is the one where her mother Antenny wants to remarry. So Frances's parents are separated, Mm -hmm. and Frances, who is a good Catholic schoolgirl and really has bought into what she's being taught, is devastated to learn that her mother has met somebody new and her parents are actually divorced and her mother wants to remarry. And they go to the bishop to get some kind of permission from him, which again is so far removed from my understanding of the world, you know. Yeah. I loved, there's this moment in, I think it's, Frances is doing something at school. She's in a play at school and her father turns up and her mother's there with her new husband and the father walks over and he shakes the new husband's hand and all three of them are sitting together and I just thought everybody is turning the other cheek except for the clergy in this episode. Yes. That's so true, isn't it? There's not even conflict between the old no. and the new. Yeah, you're it so is just right. So, there's just so much love for this, this connection, which is mm. Francis, that they can all get along and they've all just being given an opportunity to live their best lives and their best lives it was not together for the catholic church yeah 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 so i i came away from that episode i think i'll probably go back and watch it again actually because it just moved me so much it also comes and i thought antony was she's wonderful fantastic. wasn't she it also comes around at the very end as well because they're all together for the graduation aren't yeah. they yeah 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 it's and- so good um so yeah i think those are my thoughts on on uh, good old bock the oc they're really good thoughts on Bok, Kim. They really are. Do you know what I was thinking? One of the things I was thinking about this is this is such a progressive, sort of sexually progressive piece of work. You know, it's it encourages all of us to be really thoughtful about our own sexuality and all that kind of stuff. One of the things that really left me as a teenager with was a terrible fear of hemorrhaging blood. So it actually oh. made me really scared of sex. This, which I'm sure Penny Chapman and the people that made this would be appalled, you know, by this, but it <laughs> made me really scared to have sex. Uh, this miniseries because of the portrayal of um, what happened to girls when they had sex in this, like yeah. no, but no one really enjoyed it. 
Yeah. In my recollection now, I'm just trying to think if anybody. Oh, well, Diane. Except for Diane, yeah. She doesn't really even enjoy it. It's kind of a bit awkward, isn't it? It's just kind of, we Uh, don't really. I think it was. Like, I just feel. Somewhere between. I mean, uh, I I have a bit of a. move. Yeah, but I have a bit of a bugbear about portrayals of the world moving during sex sex. in media, you know? Like, I think that. It's all a bit overplayed, really, yeah. in most, and it has it, it has a lot to answer for in terms of it, people's understanding and expectations yeah. around sex. And so, I actually thought it was a really like an honest portrayal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I thought it was a really honest portrayal because that's the thing. I just felt like it left me quite scared of yeah. what sex would be as a young woman. That was one of the things that really, even though I loved this piece so much, that was one of the things that really stuck with me as a teenager watching it. Doesn't it say so much about how a piece of content can impact you? How powerful it is. Yeah, how powerful it can be depending on the age that you are. Absolutely. So for me, the real takeaway, because I watched this as a 40-year-old woman, the massive takeaway for me was the friendships, the female Mm, friendships mm. between the women and also some of the relationships between the adults. So it's funny, isn't it, what you take away? Yeah, it is. Well, as a 40-year-old, I think I probably took away a lot of that same stuff and how beautifully written it is and how, you know, that's a great example, the relationship between those parents of how much like real life it is. Like it's not, I mean, of course it's high drama, but it's not high drama, if you know what I mean. Like there's not, the conflicts are all in subtext in this Yes. Like all great writing. Like, you know, it's you kind of the, the characters are so layered. Nobody ever quite says what they mean to, but we know through yeah. these incredible actors, like the Sandy Gore, Philip Quast, the Mother Ambrose school teacher thing, that moment when they're at the cinema and his kids come along for mm. the when they're on their day, and you can just see her heartbreak. Yeah. Yet none of that is ever expressed by yeah. either of them. We never think that she's going to leave the church. We never think that she's, you know, we think she has got a crush on this guy. But, we, yeah. you know, so much is left for us to figure out, which is what's so wonderful about it. Yeah. I think it really says a lot too about, I guess, the difference and the connection between intellectual crushes and sexual attraction. That mm. seemed to me like an intellectual crush, like it was somebody who was expressing views that she doesn't get to hear as that often particularly from men, and she doesn't get to express at all, although she, because she's an intelligent woman and she's mm-hmm. not steadfast in the tradition in the same way that Sister Agnes is, she probably is thinking a lot of those things that he expressed. So to me that seemed like a real intellectual attraction. Yes, with I, I thought it was a bit sexual as well. With some sexy speedo. With some sexy speedo action. (laughs) Action. (laughs) (laughs) And just Philip Quast, you know, who is just such a, oh, he's such a star. We should wind this up, shouldn't we, Kim? Uh, I think we probably Uh, should. Can we go through an episode without doing some fashions of the field action? Well, I thought a little bit about this, uh, Kim. I really love the black habit worn by Sister Paul in episode three. (laughs) Uh, so is this the new habit or the old habit? I like both habits. Personally, as somebody, <laughs> as some, like I really understood, you know, when they had to go to the shorter habits. Yeah. Like I often think about this show, you know, having grown up in the country as a fat girl that boys didn't want to go out with, who wanted to read books, who wanted to, you know, have an intellectual life. I can see how 
this would have been a very, very attractive path if you're a Catholic girl, you yeah. know, back when because, you know, you can go and have your own space, you can be with your girlfriends, you can be educated like Van said. Plus you have a uniform that covers mm. up your body and that that takes away your sexuality, you know, that takes all your lack of sexuality or whatever it is. So, yeah, yeah I would like to be wearing the longer <laughs> ones, Kim. <laughs> But I think Sister Paul rocks the shorter ones. She sure does. Absolutely. Well, I can't go without mentioning the party dresses from episode four. So the girls are going to a party and one by one they have to come out and present themselves to Sister Agnes. (laughs) And if any part of the body is showing that doesn't meet Sister Agnes's approval. She's got some kind of, she's got some way of getting around it. So putting a napkin in the cleavage to hide the cleavage or, um, you know, putting a a cardigan over the shoulders or whatever it might be. There's some great party dresses among them. Super great. So that's all we have time for today. Um, We hope you loved this A Country Podcast Christmas special on Brides of Christ, otherwise known as Bok. (laughs) I hope you've loved it as much as we've loved putting it together. We'll have a break for a few weeks and we'll be back in the new year with guess who? Who, Kim, who? The granddaddy of Wandon Valley, the almighty creator of a country practice, Mr. James Davin. What a sweetheart. Oh, my gosh. We just love him so much after our interview with him. I can't, well, oh, my God, you're going to love him too. Until yeah. then, you can catch up on our interviews with Shane Porteous, Di Smith, Lorraine Desmond, Matt Day, and many, many other cast and creatives of a country yeah. practice. If you've got a long car trip ahead of you, listen to them, subject your whole car <laughs> to uh, episodes of a country podcast. Worth a re-listen. We're a very layered duo. You'll find little, <laughs> little Easter eggs in there. <laughs> <laughs> Undiscovered. There's, you and know, there might have been a joke or two that you missed. Absolutely. And if you listen to us on Apple Pods, please rate us and review us. That's how other people find us and that's how we build our own personal self-esteem if not a wider audience (laughs) Um, you can find us on facebook as well a country podcast and you can find me on twitter at melanie tate and i'm at kim lester thanks to our guest van batham from the week on wednesday podcast thank you to ken cameron the director of bok for putting Philip Quast in a swimming costume. <laughs> Thanks to Nate Edmondson for our theme tune, ripping on Mike Pajanik's original. And thank you so much for all our family and friends for supporting us this year and especially to you for listening. Stay safe, be well, and happy Christmas. Yeah, thank you very much. I should probably chuck in a thank you to my husband because oh my god, for Shouldn't many we? Sundays yes. he oh. has taken the kids out of the house so that you and I can have this Chris, chat. And thank you so much. I can't believe legend. I left Chris on. I, I can't believe I no, just. No, I mean I should have mentioned the, it. I can't believe I just popped him in the families, thinking the families. <laughs> Chris, you're a legend, and thanks to the Blesters as well. The Blesters are the gift that keep on giving. <laughs> They just. I'll try to come up with some new blessed memories to share with you. That'd be great. Thanks, Kim. Merry (laughs) Christmas. Same to you, Mel. See ya.